Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working in the Weeds. My name is Jay Farrell. I'm the director of the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And as always, I have my co-host, Christine Krebs. Hey, everybody. Well, Christine, I'm really excited about today's discussion. We've got our good friend and colleague, John Lane from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Hey, everybody. So we're going to kind of get into a different topic today. We're going to talk about invasive plants as always, but we're going to talk about this really interesting intersection that sometimes invasive plants and endangered species come together, and it makes a really interesting problem. So we're really happy to have our good friend and colleague, John Lane, with us today from the Army Corps of Engineers. But before we really get into him describing his experience in this area, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you find yourself into the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, th thanks, Jay. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a long story. I'll try to shorten it up a little bit for you just to um, but hit the highlights. So my background, I, I grew up as an Army brat, Air Force in particular, and we traveled all around the country. My dad was really into nature. We went to all the natural par uh, the national parks, and um, I became very interested in natural systems and birds and plants and everything um, that had to do with nature. And that led me to getting a biological degree in biology from uh, the University of Marymount. And I followed from there. I went into the Peace Corps, and I wanted to do something not only in, in the natural environment, but also to help people. So I, I ended up in fisheries, and I, uh, I did three years in, in Zaire, which is now the Congo. And, and then after that, I came back to the United States. And so I started in Wyoming with the, uh, with, in fisheries, uh, raising trout. And what I learned when I was there is that you can't take na non-native fish and put them into a, a natural system in the United States. And I thought back in my career in Africa when I was taking Nile tilapia and putting them in the Congo River Basin, and I'm like, wow, that, that wasn't good, and we shouldn't be doing those kind of things. And so as I was learning and realizing that, you know, invasives were a problem here in the United States, I started thinking about my experiences back there and what happened and why we did that. And and so I decided that I would go back into the Peace Corps again. And I got, went and got my master's degree at, the at Colorado State University in international development economics, went back to Africa and looked at the, um, agroforestry. So in agroforestry there, the program also utilized plants from other countries. And so we were actually taking um, macuna, from, things from Asia and South America and introducing them into, um, into, this was Cameroon at the time. And it turns out that that wasn't a good thing either. There's a lot of native plants that we could have used for green manures, live fencing, those types of things. But some of these plants that we were using, actually uh, Lucena lucena, which is um, here in the United States and is a problem, we actually used there. And I saw areas where it was expanding and spreading. And so I ended up trying to, I took my, and I was actually doing my uh, master's thesis there. So I switched my master's thesis and I, I, I did it on invasive species in such that um, I looked for plants, native plants in um, Cameroon that we could substitute for the non-native plants that we used um, for those uh, programs. So the desire to help was so strong that bad decisions were getting made in, in moving species around with all of the best intentions, right? Correct. So it sounds exactly like what's happened in America over and over again when you have these great intentions, but you're not really following the science. 
Correct. So when I came back to the United States, I went back and tried to get back into the Fish and Wildlife Service, but that wasn't to be, had graduate student loans coming up. So ended up taking the first position that came available. And it happened to be with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Florida. Uh, although I wanted to stay in the uh, Rockies, I said, well, maybe for a little bit. It did say something about riding airboats. So I said, well, that could be fun. So I figured I'd do a few years in the Army Corps and, and see where that took me. And I've been there ever since. I've, that was in 1998, so this is 25, almost 25 years later. I'm still here. And so I, I learned to love Florida and the program that we're in. And um, it turns out that what I did, he, what I'm doing here is invasive species management, which is exactly the penance that I have to pay for all the trauma and the, the, the environmental damage that I've done throughout my life. So a person with a passion for the environment gets a biology degree, goes and serves in the Peace Corps, and ends up in the Army Corps. And for our listeners, we've talked about the environmental stewardship that happens with the Army Corps of Engineers. But John, if you could spend some time talking a little bit about your position and what the invasive plant management branch really does, or invasive species management branch does, and what does that look like? Because we're going to spend some time in this episode really talking about collaboration between the Army Corps and other um, management agencies and stuff like that. So Sure. So... The program that we mostly work with, and I think we're going to be highlighting here today, is our Aquatic Plant Control Water Hyacinth Program, which initiated back in 1899. And I know you guys have talked about that in the past, but and, and it was it was done for navigation purposes. And we're not going to go into that. Obviously, you've done that. But um, but what we found out through the years is that it not only was benefiting navigation and flood control, but also the environment. And so that's where we want to get to, you know, what, what we want to do with all of our plant management. It turns out that when you're restoring or when you're managing invasive species, what you're actually doing is restoring the balance, the biological balance. So the Army Corps started with this grand mission of just making sure we can move people and material. And then that became, oh, we also need to move water for flood. Oh, and it is good for the environment, too. So basically, the goal has stayed the same, but the mission and why you're trying to get to this place has shifted a little bit over time. Correct. And and that was recognized even in the, I, I want to say the 40s, when we expanded this program, it was which was just for the removal of aquatic growth, which was hyacinth, which was blocking navigation channels to a wider program, which actually collaborated with the states, a cost share program on aquatic plants that actually saw the benefits for other fish, wildlife, as well as agriculture and other things. So it, 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 it started to recognize, the Corps did, that this was a bigger thing than just navigation and flood control. So you were talking about specifically the removal of aquatic growth program, which was again back to the old 1899 uh, Rivers and Harbors Act. So you're still doing removing aquatic growth that is overgrowing. But do you also do restoration? Are there other things within that other than management of this uh, invasive species? Oh, sure. So now the core, and, um, and I think I want to say it was 1996 or 99, Congress actually expanded the core's um, flood, flood control and navigation um, mission, main mission areas to include ecosystem restoration, which the first ones you saw were the Kissimmee River was actually the Corps' first. And now, obviously, we have Everglades restoration. But there's other ones throughout the country in the Great Lakes and in Louisiana. But th yes, so ecosystem restoration is a main mission focus for the Corps of Engineers. And invasive plant management, invasive management in general, does fit into that realm. And, and in fact, 
within Everglades restoration. Now we're currently doing, we've gone far beyond aquatic plants to terrestrial plants, and now we're doing reptiles, and we're looking into the fish and other things. So the whole ecosystem is really converging in the same concept. Correct. And what we've recognized is you can get the water right. You can do all your uh, trying to get the function of, of the, uh, the ecosystem right. But if you don't get the species composition right, then you really haven't won. You've, you're still out of balance. Yeah, what are we doing, yeah. right? We do all of this work, and we're still not where we're trying to go. So you, all the pieces really do need to come together. Correct. And that's where you notice that as in Everglades Restoration, now, and I know we're not going there today, but it's probably a good something for the future. But as we started with hydrologic restoration, that helps form the, the foundation of what we need to get the structure and the function right. But then the, the follow-up is to get the species composition right. And that's where we're... We're not necessarily failing, but we're not. We haven't put a lot of energy into, and we really need to start moving that direction. Big growth area, correct? Yeah. So, to the focus for today's episode is really going to take a look at how, what does it look like to put all these pieces together to mitigate the effects of invasive plants on navigation and flood control, but then also enhancing the ecosystem services and the environment that you're kind of working in, right? And so, when we look at what the Army Corps of Engineers has worked on in Florida, there's one particular case study that we've just become fascinated with, and it relates to water hyacinth, a very common plant that we talk about a lot on this podcast, and a bird that some of you may or may not have ever heard of before. It's called the Everglades snail kite. So this is a really interesting intersection that we're dealing with in, in this ecosystem. We've got endangered species on one hand. We've got invasive species on the other. And they are so different. They're diametrically opposed. For the invasive species, we spend all this time and effort trying to keep their population low while the endangered, we spend all this time and energy trying to keep their population high. And what we're really working at and looking at in this example is water hyacinth and the Everglades snail kite. Now, we all know about water hyacinth. We've talked about it a lot on this show. But just really quickly, it's a floating plant that overgrows. It reproduces sexually, asexually. It forms big, large floating mats that move around and can even act as bulldozers in certain areas, knocking over native vegetation. It sheds leaves constantly. 60% of the leaves on every plant turn over every month. You have all of this biomass falling to the bottom, changing the ecology of the system. So you have that plant that we're really trying to manage, and it starts interfacing with Everglades snail kite. Yeah, so some of y'all may have heard of this bird before, and some of you have just heard about it just now. And I spent some time before this episode kind of really diving into some more information about this species because I had heard about it a little bit in my undergrad studies. But this bird is so fascinating and finicky at the same time, and I want to spend some time talking about what makes it such a vulnerable species and set its endangered status. So it was first listed as endangered on March 11th in 1967 because Researchers were noticing that there was limited distribution of its population and the habitat was degrading significantly, particularly in Florida, right? This bird is only found in central and south Florida to date. And so first and foremost, it's threatened because of habitat loss and degradation, but also it's kind of a picky eater. Um, its beak is actually designed specifically to eat this one type of snail, an apple snail. And in Florida, there's a native apple snail. And it's about the size of a ping pong ball. 
Then, recently, there's been an introduction of an invasive apple snail, believe it or not. And that apple snail is actually a lot bigger than the native one. They look pretty similar if you see them, but if you put them next to each other, you're like, oh, okay, I can definitely tell the difference. And this invasive apple snail is a lot larger, about the size of a baseball. And so if you think, if you're a bird really trying to find all the food in the snail that you can and you see a bigger snail, you're like, well, let me go ahead and eat that. But then the trick is that it is, although it is a picky eater and it only eats this type of snail, the beak isn't really designed for that species of snail. And so there was a time in history where in like mid-2000s when the bird population lowered significantly despite the invasive apple snail being here because the beaks just weren't ready to handle that, that snail. Now, if you know a little bit about evolutionary bi biology, especially with Charles Darwin, who even studied beaks with finches, these beaks slowly started to evolve and adapt and different um, generations of these, of these snail kites started to have these beaks that were ready and prepared to eat from these invasive apple snails. So we've got this sort of relationship between an invasive snail, an endangered species happening, and remember y'all, it's a picky eater. Now, on top of habitat loss and degradation and its picky eating habits, it's also really, really reliant on water levels. And that's going to be the big theme of today's conversation with this bird. It's not only losing quality habitat and a picky eater, but it's sensitive to changes in the water level. So let me explain what that looks like just briefly. If the water level is too low, the areas in which this bird nests or where they like to nest is kind of within emergent plant species, the plants that kind of grow at the edge of the water where the water is starting to get a little bit deeper, but really it's it's relatively shallow. Yeah, they like to nest like right at the water's edge, right? Yes, yeah. And, and often you'll find them in like the cattails or the rushes. And then at the same time, they also kind of like the patchier, a little bit more deeper water areas where the snails like to hide, where their, where their primary food source is, right? Because these snails are at the bottom of the water. Then they'll float up for some air and come back down. Well, when they float up, that's when the bird takes in the opportunity to eat the snail. So they like this sort of patchy water habitat. Now, if the water gets too high, it kind of has the same problem. The emergent plants are not really happy with the very high water levels, so they're not really there anymore. The birds are either forced to nest in the treetops where they're vulnerable to other predators like a barred owl, or they are then nesting near water where other predators like alligators and um, marsh rats can take on the opportunity to get the eggs, right? And so this sort of too low, too high water level can really shift where these populations thrive or survive um, in Florida. And it's been really interesting to, to read about this sort of relationship happen within the last 25 years in Florida. I don't know if y'all have any more to add, but this bird has been really fun to read about. Well, they're really locked in on that one food source. So anything environmentally that happens that changes a habitat, now they have to fundamentally respond because there's only one thing that they eat. And on Lake Okeechobee in particular, because uh, I think that's where we're going to head here, we saw that between the between about 2000 and 2010, we saw a huge reduction in the snail kite population. It went from about 3,000 to about 700. And in that period, you saw in Lake Okeechobee, we had two major droughts, the two largest that we've ever had, where the lake got down to about eight or nine feet. And then we also had a lot of hurricanes uh, that preceded the, both of those. So you had this huge water level shift from high to low, and then a recession that was fast because the core we had with our water regulation schedule, which you kind of mentioned, that's part of the human aspect of this. The core doesn't want the, the, the levee to break, right? We're trying to keep people protected from flooding. 
So we institute these uh, water regulation schedules that prevent that from happening. In that, we, we want to bring the water to a certain level at a certain time of the year. Well, hurricanes bring it up really fast. We get two, three, four feet of elevational change within a month or less. And then that gets it above the regulation schedule that we want. So then we have to quickly release the water and bring it back down. Well, neither of those situations is good for the bird, both for in, in the habitat that they're trying to, to that they're trying to live in or or put their nesting in, or for the, the snails as well. So that's where we saw a lot of snails dying. And that's when I said with that intersection between us trying to manage the water hyacinth out there and trying to keep the snail kite populations high came together. So we've got a lot going on. Again, it's complicated, right? You've got hurricanes coming in, you've got water, you have drought, you've got all of these things. The water is going up and down very quickly. It's The water levels are changing faster than the birds can adapt to it. So you've got all of these things happening. Meanwhile, you have water hyacinth. And since this bird has to hunt by sight, they have to be able to see the snails. And when you have a big raft, several acres or dozens of acres of water hyacinth, they can no longer see to hunt. So now that completely takes that hunting opportunity, that feeding opportunity away from them. So how have you guys dealt with this? Because the birds are not necessarily under the purview of the Army Corps. The plants are because of your old original mission. So what does this landscape look like and how have you tried to help the kite? So, great question. So basically what happened is in the mid-2000s, when we started seeing these declines in populations, we started coordinating with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Commission, the state and the feds. On the lake, we have an, an interagency group that it comprised of the, the plant managers. So you're talking about the water management districts, FWC, but the plant management side of them, as well as the Army Corps. And so we, we meet every other month and we discuss how we're going to be managing the lake. The FWC and FWS came to us with these problems with the snail kites and they said, hey, look, we, got, we need you to stop. You know, we want you to stop spraying out there because, you know, the, there's very few birds left and they're nesting out on Lake Okeechobee. Historically, they had been there, but they had kind of moved south into the Everglades. They kind of bounce around. They look for the best habitat where, and food sources that are available. And so Lake Okeechobee is usually within that realm. But because of all of the, the, the hurricanes and the droughts, it became a, a lot less ha uh, suitable for their um, habitat as, as, as habitat for them. So we, we started talking to them and they're like, you know, we, we, we can't, we had to coordinate and compromise on what we needed to do. We're trying to manage these species out there and, and keep the balance out there for the, the plants. But yet we have a, we have an endangered species here who we really need to take special attention to, to make sure that they do well and that they can survive. So we ended up, um, the, the, they started letting us know where these nesting locations were and we would we put buffers around them, and then we would make sure that our contractors or our spray crews would not go near those. So these were huge buffers around them. And it turned out, and uh, we'll look at one area in particular, because I think it's a good um, example of what can happen, is Eagle Bay Island, which is on the north side of the lake uh, near Okeechobee, the city of Okeechobee. So for years, there was, there was nesting out there. There were snail kites out there, and so we just did not go there. So for three years, we didn't treat anything in that area. So the water hyacinth came in, and this was mostly a, a cattails. 
So the concern was don't go in there and treat because we don't want herbicides or harvesters or anything like that to disturb the nest. Was that the concern? Co- yeah, no, sorry. Yes, correct. And and also the airboats because typically we treat with uh, airboats and those airboats, the, between the noise and the, the wind and the prop wash would blow the the – the babies, the nest would destroy the nest or blow the birds out. So, so really, just any disturbance. Yeah, we're just trying to keep everything away from them. Give them the best uh, uh, ability they have to to, to recreate or to procreate. But now the hyacinth has started to really invade. But now the hyacinths come in. So a year of it's not so bad, right? It's kind of spotty in there, but it's starting to come in. In and this is a cat, predominantly cattail mix in there, and so uh, with smartweed and some other things. So, but as the hyacinth get in, in involved, they they just start taking over, and so after three years, it's all hyacinth, and they have they have taken out a lot of the cattails. They've with the wind action that occurs, they can push them over, bulldoze them. I think you said that earlier, maybe. Um, and so, really, the habitat it dest- they destroyed the habitat that we were trying to keep for the birds. So well, while trying to protect that nest that they were in the cattails, now the hyacinth has pushed the cattails over right. while also taking out a lot of opportunity for them to be able to see and hunt. Yes. Yeah, and if you all remember from the deep dive, these these invasive plants, they've got it figured out, right? So this water hyacinth figuratively was like, I have an opportunity to move in. Meanwhile, while meaning good, these two agencies are like, let's leave this area alone and let this endangered species try to figure it out. But at the same time, now you have these two things clashing. So there's been so since that period we recognize that and we work with the, the service to to better manage. So now we're like okay, well maybe during these non-nesting seasons we can go in there, bring the populations down, get the balance back, so that the, the habitat will come back, so that the, that will become a good habitat for the snail kites to nest in again. So really trying to protect the nest. So when you've got the nesting going on, it's it's hands off. We it's it's too risky to go in there. But when the nests are not active, is when you really need to clean up so you can protect the area for when they do come back and try to nest for the next season. Exactly. And that's what's going on now. So we've kind of changed. We've evolved our management strategy with the coordination with the Fish and Wildlife and the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission so that we're we're, we're, we do what we can do during the periods of time that it's not impacting the kites. And then when the kites are there, we back off as far as we can so that they can do their thing and, and well, this sounds like your entire career. You said you started out in the Peace Corps really wanting to help and doing things that you found out later weren't helpful and you had to then undo and fix in later uh, trips. <laughs> and and now you've got the same scenario. All right. Well, in trying to help, we allowed one problem to overshadow another. We let the invasive plant win over the endangered species. So now you're trying to figure out how to manage one while the other, and while protecting the other. So, and it sounds like these agencies have, have really figured it out together and known and learned how to collaborate as well. Right. And it's not a perfect scenario until we can get rid of the water hyacinth. It's never going to be right. And there's another factor, what we were talking about earlier with the water regulation schedule, and that's going to impact the kites as well. And that's something that we don't have as much say over. That's that's a bigger picture item that, um, you know, we can just do what we can do. We coordinate with the people we can, and then we, you know, but at some point there's only so much we can do. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, people will say green is good, all right? That plant is good. But in this scenario, water hyacinth is a real detriment to this endangered species, and it does have to be managed if we value the 
the reproduction and the growth of that endangered species. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the expertise that your group brought to the table with invasive plant management and then the expertise that the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission brought to the table, this literally looked like the interagency task force for the Lake Okeechobee coming together weekly, bimonthly, like coming together, talking through these plans and then actively adapting management strategies, uh, I guess, boats in the water. Yes, correct. And, and and to this day, we they are part of our team, the, the management team on Lake Okeechobee. So every... Uh, two months is usually when we have our interagency meetings. They come in, they show us, they give us a map of where the um, nesting is occurring or where they've seen them, and we start backing off on those areas. And they tell us this is a good time. You know, we we think they're nesting now. We're out. You know, and then once they've once they've fledged, they've moved on, and they don't see any activity in those areas. We move back in to help clean it up for when they come back. That's exactly right. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's review some of these pieces of this sort of case study that we dove into with John here. We've got this endangered species that's fascinating and really finicky at the same time, right? And and kind of like a staple to Florida's natural resources environment. Like we don't want to see this bird leave. Then we've also have this invasive plant that we've talked almost every about every season, water highs, and it's got it figured out. It has these ways of just taking over and kind of being a bully in the environment, right? And then both of these, the plant and the animal rely heavily on these water levels that fluctuate because not only of man-made decisions because we need it for flood control and navigation and resources, but then also let's not forget the natural occurrences that happen, particularly in South Florida when you've got hurricanes coming in, changing the water levels drastically, and then also at the same time the opposite that John's brought up before, drought, too little water. And this is just the reality of what it's like to be out on airboats, to work in natural environments, and to kind of show up to work, put your boat in the water, and try to figure out what's going on and do the best that you can. Because at the end of the day, people who work in the natural resource, for the most part, enjoy the environment too in their free time and have this connection and this desire to be stewards of these areas. And we're just kind of doing the best we can with the toolkit that we've got. And it sounds like the collaboration and the interagency task force that happens in Lake Okeechobee is just getting strong and more um, informed in decision-making. Absolutely. It's such a dynamic system out there. There's so many pieces going on. And as you said, we do, all of us that are in this world, in this realm of um, invasive species or endangered species, we love the environment. We want to protect and make it as good as we possibly can. And so that's why we got into this. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why we we, tr- we know we have to coordinate and collaborate with each other to make it the best we possibly can. Because it's all those diverse I- ideas and interests that are going to make come up with these better solutions so that we can have a better Lake Okeechobee, a better environment down there. And what's amazing is this has been very successful. This collaboration has worked. So the birds are no longer just at Lake Okeechobee. They moved up into central Florida, and there are a number of active nests now as far north as Gainesville, showing that they are having to increase their range because the population has really grown, forcing them to move. So it's a phenomenal story about how these these agencies have worked together on a common goal, and the benefactor has been the endangered species, the, the snail kite. Yeah, and it's the game's not over yet. I mean, this is still going on. There's still more hurricanes. There's more droughts. We're we're changing the regulation schedule as we speak. There's more invasives coming in. I mean, right now we do have the invasive apple snail, which actually you're right, helping. Um, it's a shame we don't have the 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 native snail. Is there a way we can start bringing their populations back? That's the kind of thing I'd like to work on. 
And uh, but yes, we have we have come a long way, and we're going to continue to evolve and adapt as these things come at us and make that environment the best we can. Meanwhile, hoping that uh, endangered species can keep figuring it out and keep rolling with the punches as they come as well. That's right. And that we can continue to manage those invasive species that we don't want that are putting the, the, the natural system, the biological system out of balance back in balance by pulling them out of the system the best of our ability without impacting any of the species that we want there. Now, so this has been about the snail kite predominantly, but are there other endangered species that you guys are helping manage or are helping to put back in a more firm footing? So manatees are another example of an endangered species that we're definitely concerned about and work with other agencies on. And there's, you know, this, um, the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow, we work with them. There's there's other species out there that we're very concerned about. And it's probably better for other podcasts. There's a lot to go into and on all those. Um, but yes. And the we, pesky water hyacinth, they're impacting them just like they did the snail kite. They are. And what it takes is interagency coordination again. And, and that's what we do. We do work with FWC and FWS on the manatee issue on St. John's River. So yes, that's definitely another. There's a lot out there. A lot of problems. So a lot of our listeners work in the weeds. Do you have any advice or something that you really want them to leave with today when it comes to kind of learning more about invasive plants or, you know, showing up to work and having more of a positive mindset when it comes to kind of restoring the balance? Yeah, Christine, I think, you know, I think we as invasive species managers, we need to feel better about why we do what we do. It seems kind of negative at times that we have to kill things to make things better. It's, it's, it seems contradictory. But really all we're doing is we're trying to put the natural biological balance back in place. So by removing these things that weren't there before, you should feel good about that because that is restoring the balance of nature to where it should have been. And I think it's really important to, to hit that one point is we're talking about plants that never should have been here anyway. These are invasive plants that are, have been destructive and causing problems in this state for over 100 years. But we continue to see invasive species be released into our environment, whether they be reptiles or any or, or still plants that are coming in through plant trade, uh, diseases, viruses, all of these things that are attacking the native flora of, of Florida. So please, everyone, be really cautious. If you are bringing in some new amazing creature into your life, Leave it in a place where it can be safe, where we're not going to endanger the environment. Because as it goes out into the natural world, it has such a probability of disrupting the balance that a hundred years later, we're still trying to restore. All right. So thank you all for listening to Working in the Weeds. If you have any questions or ideas for the podcast, email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. That's caip at ifis.ufl.edu. You can stay connected with CAPE on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UFIFIS CAPE.